Brother James, I'm going to invite you forward. I'm going to ask you just a few brief questions. Uh, I think we're going to have to share mics and then you're going to take this black one. Um, tell us, you, you are from America, but whereabouts in America do you come from? Well, I'm originally a Dutch boy. I was born in Holland, Michigan, which is a Dutch community. I have lived in Michigan most of my life. Met my wife at Andrews University, uh, at the university there in Michigan as well. And um, I'm a Michigander. So your, your Michigan in Adventism is famous for great big university college, isn't it? Andrews University. Are you far from Andrews University? Oh, we live about 45 minutes from there. Okay. Uh, you go to Andrews University or you used to go there? You... Uh, we were both students there and, uh, well, we, I mean, so close we get back there often, uh, not only to study, to see friends, to purchase more books. You can't have enough books when you're a pastor. Yeah. <laughs> now, you're not a pastor in the sense of working for the conference, are you? Nope. Tell um, us what you actually do. I, I was really, very interested what you and your wife have. Actually, let's ask, no, we'll get you up in church. So your day's coming. When everyone's here, that's when we'll get you up, Vicky. Yeah. Tell us what you do and what your wife does, because it was very interesting. Well, immediately following uh, college, um, I was hired uh, because my background was behavioral sciences and religion, and so I was hired by an inpatient drug abuse facility, uh, actually still not very far from Andrews. And my wife, who is a social worker, said, that's really the job that I should be working. <laughs> you and had her so, job. Uh, yeah. And so uh, we actually found a outpatient substance abuse office where we could both work for about 10 years. And then after about 10 years, then she wanted to return to Andrews and get her master's degree in social work. And so um, what I found was that working in substance abuse, I really enjoyed going out to the schools and working with the kids. I, I'd rather put more time into prevention than having to deal with the problem afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay? And so uh, it's been about 21 years now since she returned to Andrews, and when she went back to school, I said, can I go through that black hole called self-employed? Yeah. I would like to just work as a school speaker. And the school speaking has literally taken us around the world. Uh, been over to India now three times, have worked with the Eskimos up in the far regions of the United States. Um, it has just really blessed us. And in fact, I believe the more you serve the Lord, the more he's going to serve yeah. you with blessings. One question more, then we'll let you go because of time. But you've got a family, you've got a wife. Tell us about your kids. I have two daughters, both single. Uh, I actually said to him, you should have brought them out. <laughs> Yeah. We've got a few boys we could introduce them here. They, 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 both have, they both have young men in their lives, but uh, Christy, she's my oldest. She's 29, and she's following in the footsteps of her mother. She is uh, just finishing her master's of social work. Uh, actually, my wife and her both work in the same mental health office. Yeah, yeah. And then my youngest daughter, who's 26, uh, Sarah, she is a kindergarten teacher. And so, um, Which arguably would be the most challenging teaching job you could have. <laughs> Yep. So she, she's kind of followed her father in terms of working with the schools yeah. and such. Well, we're glad you're here, and I'm just going to hand it straight over to you, brother. Okay, thank you. Well, good morning. First time to this side of the world. Uh, 
When I left Chicago and flew east 15 hours, well, almost 19 hours, that put us in India. So now I know if you hop on the plane and go the other direction 19 hours, that puts you in a place called Australia. Uh, we spent the day yesterday at the zoo here. What a wonderful place. And then as I've looked around and this morning, I've met a number of you who I've also known on Facebook. So to, to see you, to meet you is a, is a real blessing. Today, uh, let me turn this uh, little clicker gizmo on here. There we go. Um, we're challenged, of course, by time. And so I'm going to be moving very quickly through the presentation uh, today and also for the church service hour. My love, ever since I was back to the seminary, has been the study of the four horsemen. And with as much as you've heard about the four horsemen, can you believe that nobody has ever written a book on the Four Horsemen. And so I turned to my mentor, Dr. John Pauline, a number of years ago, and I was inquiring of him, is there anybody who has written on this topic? Because there's so much to learn here. And he indicated that he was not familiar with anyone, and so then I knew, okay, here's an opportunity. It's always hard to fill shoes of somebody else before you, but when nobody else has yet created that shoe, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a challenge, but it's been also a blessing. We're not actually going to speak about the four horsemen until the church service. What I want to do this morning is I want to focus on what's happening with regard to the Bible. Now, back in Michigan, uh, came to meet your pastor over Facebook, found myself on Sabbath afternoons, which is much, you know, later than you. I mean, we're 14 hours behind. And so on my Sabbath afternoons, my wife and I will often turn on your church service and watch what has been spoken about here. I'm also on Facebook with Pastor Lloyd, and so I know how concerned he has been about recent, recent developments in and around our church in terms of trying to take Christ out of the Trinity. My concern, as I've posted up here, is that there's also been an attempt to take Christ out of certain Old Testament prophecies and New Testament prophecies. So when you think about it, the whole Bible is under attack. Specifically, of all people, Jesus Christ. This morning what I want to do is I want to point out to you that there are some, what I would call, middle-of-the-road text. Uh, in other words, when you come to the why, you have to make a decision. If you make the correct decision, you continue to follow Christ. If you make the incorrect decision, it will take you down a path about people and the Antichrist. So in some portions of the Bible today, Christ is being pulled out and the Antichrist has been put in. And you will see this so clearly as we move forward today. Now, Daniel 9 has a direct impact on the study of the four horsemen. And as you can see, in a number of ways. We're going to come to that. What I want to show you here is this statement. I, I think this is so interesting. Sir Isaac Newton pointing out Daniel 9. Now, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Daniel 9. Please turn to Daniel 9, because that's where we're going to be this morning for the next few minutes. Daniel 9. Daniel 9, and specifically verses 24 through 27, 
Sir Isaac Newton had written that this passage is the foundation stone of the Christian religion. Now, here's the layout of chapter 9. I don't expect you to be able to read all this right now, so I've just laid it out for you. But here's the layout of Daniel 9. First, you have Daniel, who is studying Jeremiah. He knows they are at the end of their history. And Lloyd, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate the fact that you are a history buff. And so I, I, as I listen each week and I hear you talk about history, well, this is all about history. So here it is. It's the end of the 70 years that Israel is now in Babylon. Then there's the prayer of confession. It's the longest prayer in the book of Daniel. It's the seventh and final prayer. Then we see Daniel interceding for his people Israel. Then we have Gabriel who quickly responds to Daniel. Then we are given the 70-week or 49-year, 490-year prophecy. And then finally, the Messiah's ministry. That's all packed in to Daniel 9. Now, specifically, right at the end of Daniel, if you're looking in your Bibles and you see verses 24 through 27 there, here's what you have. Here's the key points. Verse 24, we have the 70 weeks. Verse 25, we have the introduction of the Messiah, the Prince. Verse 26, we learn that the Messiah will be cut off his death. And verse 27, we learn that through his death, he also confirms the covenant. Those are the key points of those verses at the end of chapter 9. Now, what I would like to do is I want to take those very first words in your Bible. So if you're looking at your Bible, it's all the better. Very first words in Daniel 9.24 says, 70 weeks are determined upon your people. I'd like to take a close look at that with you. Here we go. 70 weeks. That's the first part. We're going to look at all three sections. 70 weeks. Daniel 8 is where Daniel receives a vision. And that vision is about a 2300-day prophecy. At the end of that vision, he says, this is beyond my understanding. He simply does not understand it. Then we come to chapter 9. And chapter 9 is about Daniel now understanding. It's In other words, it's a good thing. So in Daniel 9, we start off at the beginning of the chapter. He says, I understand the prophecies of Jeremiah. And at the close of the chapter, verse 23, we have Gabriel saying, I've come forth to give you, Daniel, understanding. I want you to understand the 2300-day vision. Chapter 8, lack of understanding. Chapter 9, now he has it. Now, we know from Bible study, we're aware of the fact that we have a day for a year principle and that the 70 weeks actually comes out to 490 literal years. We also know that most Bible scholars agree that this passage of time led all the way up to the day of Jesus. In fact, if you have an RSV Bible this morning, in your RSV Bible, the footnote says 70 weeks of years. It understands that the symbolic dating is actually translated into years. And so what we have is 70 weeks of years after which the messianic kingdom will come. And well, you can see my little red thing. Here's the 490 years right there. This prophecy goes way on out for the full 2300. But we'll talk about that a little bit later on. So we know that the 70 weeks there in your Bible in that opening verse is referring to the 490 years that leads up to the Messiah, Jesus. The next word is determined. 
When we take a closer look at this, we find out that this Hebrew word is generally translated in your Bibles as determined or decreed. But literally, the word means to cut. And so what we have here is 490 years that is cut from the whole 2300. And so here you've got the whole piece up here, 2300, the 490 being the first portion that takes us up to the Messiah himself. 490 years, a portion of that 2300 years, we come to the third important word, upon. This gets really interesting. Question. Is the word upon meant to be negative against the Jewish people? And Pastor Lloyd, I especially wanted to bring this up today because I was just listening a few weeks ago when you were talking about the Jewish people in the New Testament. We're going to hit on that today. The better translation for this word is the word for. Check out this. Depending on how the translation of the Bible you select writes it out, it can have a very negative impact or a very positive impact. The positives are written below. But notice how negative some translations will go. For example, the CEV, God has decided your people must suffer. Your Bible doesn't say that. They are taking liberty with the Bible to tell you what they think it means about the Jewish people. Or you can take the TLB, 490 years of further punishment upon. Can you see how that is interjected, this negative? So a person who reads one of these translations, they just assume this must be a bad thing that Gabriel's telling Daniel about what God feels towards the Jewish people. Now, this is such an important statement. Dr. Mervyn Maxwell, um, he is now deceased, but he was our history professor at Andrews University for many, many years. In his book, he writes, Gabriel had come to explain the 2300 years. He began his explanation by announcing that 490 years were to be cut or amputated from the longer 2300 year period. And I love his final words. The matter is as simple as that. You see, the cut pertains to the years, to the time period, not to the people. Yet some will force that word cut to apply not only to the time, but also to the Jewish people. Notice how Dr. Dukan writes this in his book on Daniel. Yet many Christians, instead of paying attention to what the Messiah had done on behalf of the world, that includes you and I, preferred to speculate and capitalize on what they thought Christ was doing against the Jews, which is anti-Semitism. He goes on, nowhere does the text of the prophecy suggest such a concept. And you know that because you're looking in your Bibles at verse 24 right now. It's simply not there. It has to be added to the text. Now, a lot of people don't even think of it this way, but the entire chapter of Daniel 9 is really full of hope. I mean, look at all the things here. First of all, it's the end of Jeremiah's 70 years. Daniel's looking forward to the end of that prophecy. They can return home. He started off in chapter 8 by not understanding. Now he does understand. Not only that, but now King Nebuchadnezzar, 
He's out of the picture. We now have Cyrus on the throne. Cyrus, as you recall, was God's anointed Messiah. Anointed means Messiah. It also means Christ. He is now on the throne. You have Daniel, who is interceding for his people. He understands why they're in Babylon. And so he is interceding on behalf of his people in his city. Then you have Daniel, who is called greatly beloved of God, you know, from Gabriel's visitation. And finally, we have Messiah's ministry and the sacrifice foretold. Everything about this chapter is really very positive. Now, here's my paraphrase, knowing everything we do about the words that we just talked about. 490 literal years are cut from the 2300-year prophecy of chapter 8's Mara vision for the benefit of your people. You don't usually think of chapter 9 being for the benefit of the Jews. But let's go a bit further. Six predictions are made. Those predictions are right there in your Bible. If you look at verse 24, you'll see all of them. Finish the transgression. Make an end of sin. Make atonement for iniquity. Bring in everlasting righteousness. Seal up the vision and prophecy. Anoint the most holy. My question, who would accomplish this? Check out some of these quotations. Here we have Dr. Vernon McGee, popular name in the evangelical world. Here's what he writes. This has not been fulfilled. He's saying this is still in the future. This has not been fulfilled. The national sins of Israel will come to an end when? Second coming. We're talking here today about this being about Christ the Messiah, something that happened 2,000 years ago. But depending on what church that you were sitting in this weekend listening to a study on Daniel 9, you could be led to understand the Messiah is not even part of the picture. This is all about the Jews. It's about what they have not done. It's about further punishment. It's about what happens at the second coming of Jesus. Can you see the great divide here? The Messiah is literally being taken out of this passage and being replaced with an emphasis on Jewish people. Let's go a step further. The adult lesson for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I'll tell you, the more you read, the more you'll know. Here it is. Jewish. That was the emphasis back in 1987 in the adult lesson. The first objective to finish the transgression was to give the Jewish people a fair chance to decide if they were going to serve God or their own selfish purposes. In other words, the lesson written that year was saying those things that you read in Daniel 9.24 there in your Bible, that's the Jewish people. They better get their act together. They don't get their act together, God's going to throw them out. Now notice how it changed. Here's the adult Sabbath school lesson with the emphasis on the Messiah in 2004. No mention about the Jewish people here. Through his sacrifice on the cross, Jesus brought to an end the broken relationship. The Messiah would take their sins on himself and thereby make an end of sin. Jesus took care of sin in all of its forms. The whole passage, all of it. The newer writing is focusing on Jesus, the Messiah. Not what a group of people would have to do. In fact, I'm going to go back for just a moment here. Think about this. Can you imagine yourself actually doing 
any of those. Can you imagine? Impossible. You could not do what only a perfect Messiah could do. Now, going forward here, the Messiah, he would finish the transgression. The Messiah, he would make an end of sins. The Messiah, he would bring in reconciliation for iniquity. The Messiah, he would bring in everlasting righteousness. Messiah, he would slip the vision prophecy. Messiah, he would anoint the most holy. I like the way Dr. Savanovic says this. In the first three statements, right there in your Bible, in the first three statements of verse 24, three different words for sin are used in order to describe the rich variety of forgiveness that God would grant to his people. God pledged to work out the forgiveness of people's sins, transgressions, and rebellions. It's all about the Messiah. It's about what he would do. It had nothing to do with get your act together or else. Roy Ellen Anderson, Besser Lloyd, I brought you a copy of his book. I did not know he was Australian. I did not know he was an evangelist over here. Roy Ellen Anderson, the six important, notice he doesn't say five, he doesn't say four, he doesn't say three. The six important predictions mentioned in Daniel 9.24 were what? All fulfilled. All fulfilled during the 70th week, our Lord would accomplish this. You see, I wanted to put these up on the screen for you this morning so that you're not thinking, well, maybe this is some new thought coming out of Michigan. No, this was being preached scores of years ago. But I'm afraid too many Adventists were not reading. Now, here's something interesting. This man is not an Adventist. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones of the Westminster Chapel in England taken from his book, knows what he has to say. So I suggest to you that verse 24 is entirely messianic. It is a prophecy of what would happen when Christ came to do his perfect work. And so that leaves us with the question, why all the talk about the Antichrist and the seven years of tribulation in chapter 9 if all of this is true? So I laid this out. This has been about one of the one of the simplest ways that I have found, and, and, and I can't take credit for it. I found this on the internet, but I love the way it's designed. I want you to notice, and with, with the way our uh, video is working here this morning, everything's already up there, so I, I I cannot do this in steps. So let me show you what I've done. You'll notice the word Messiah over here. The Messiah, the pink, is up here, and here, and here. At the beginning of each verse, as I've outlined way over here, 25A, 26A, 27A, the beginning of each verse is focused on the Messiah himself. So we have the Messiah, the prince who arrives. We have the Messiah who is cut off by his death. We have Messiah who confirms the covenant. In the second half of each of those verses come the negative, the negative things that happen that are unrelated to the Messiah himself directly. The next screen, let me lay this out because it's all shooting at one time. We know that we have Messiah the Prince up here. We also know that we have Messiah the Prince at the beginning of Daniel 9.26. But notice that there's two princes that are spoken of in this verse. We also have the Prince of the People. You'll notice in this translation here, the P for Prince is purposely 
in the lower case, not the uppercase. We have two. Here's what happens. Instead of recognizing that this second prince, how should I say this? What many of our evangelical teachers now do is they will assume that the second prince in the small letter case is the same one at the beginning of verse 27, which means that instead of he, the prince, being the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would confirm the covenant for one week and then also the cross, instead they make the assumption that that he, in verse 27, just like it is in your Bible, must be someone related to or the Antichrist. What happens then is the Messiah is pulled out of the passage, the Antichrist or someone on earth working for him or under him becomes the he in verse 27. Literally, the Messiah is exchanged for the Antichrist. And when we come this afternoon or come actually during the service to look at the first horseman, you will find that the very same thing happens in the New Testament when we come to Revelation 6. Mervyn Maxwell puts this out so easily. By not learning about the literary structure, what I just showed you, of Daniel 9, some people today teach that something very important will be done against God's saints in the future by the Antichrist that was actually done for them 1,900 years ago by Jesus Christ. I like the way Dr. DeCon summarizes this. The purpose of the 70 weeks is good news of the salvation of both Jews and of the world. If you want to put it in other words, Jews and Gentiles, the whole world. Christ died for all. And so he has through the work of the new high priest. This prophecy does not speak of the rejection of the Jews, but of the adoption of the Gentiles, who are not seen as replacing the Jews, but as joining them. They are grafted into them. Lloyd, that's where I appreciated your sermon a few weeks ago, as I, I watched your fingers trying to graft those together. That was exactly the point of Daniel 9. Now, I love the way Paul says it. Here in Romans 11, did God reject his people? He's a Jew. He's talking about himself. He's talking about his people. Did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite. God did not reject his people. As far as election is concerned, God's call is irrevocable. And then he concludes, don't boast, Gentiles. The Jewish root still supports you. Little pause. That was a lot of information to take in. Here's the summary. Before we go to the four horsemen, I wanted you to see that in Daniel 9, we already have in Scripture where the Messiah is being replaced with the Antichrist. A improper reading of the text has led many, and, and today I call it eye candy, Walk into the Christian bookstore, and there you will see, in the prophecy section, 
all kinds of books written about the Antichrist instead of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But I will point this out to you. Those are not serious commentators. If you take a look at both the commentaries and what I call the eye candy softback books, you will find that the majority, and you will see this later, the majority of Christian scholars go the same direction that Seventh-day Adventists go with Jesus Christ being the Messiah in these prophecies, whereas the popular eye candy in the prophecy section is what too many people are hearing and reading when they turn on these Sunday morning programs that are talking about prophecy. I challenge you, don't go with the first paperback book you pick up. I just showed you a few moments ago how even some Bible translations are written in such a way as to give you a certain theological viewpoint that the text does not even mention. Now, we're going to take just the last closing minutes here and look at just a quick piece on Revelation that will set us up for looking at the four horsemen in our church service this morning. I want you to notice... I like to refer to this as Revelation's opening story. You have the seven churches, the throne room, the seven seals, and finally the redeemed in heaven. When we talk about the Antichrist as we have been, part of the discussion is the rapture of the church. Notice, right here after the seven churches, we have what evangelicals will tell us is the rapture of the church. And then the whole book of Revelation changes. You walk into Pastor Lloyd's Revelation Seminar, and you're going to hear about Jesus Christ and his church throughout the book of Revelation. If I walk into the wrong seminar that is teaching that the rapture occurs at the end of the seven churches, the end of chapters 2 and 3, I won't hear more about Jesus Christ and the seven churches. Instead, I'll be hearing about the Antichrist and the Jews and the seven-year tribulation here on earth completely changes the book of Revelation. So here's the question. Does Revelation 4 actually say anything about the church being raptured? Here's the text. You can look at it in your Bibles. It's pretty clear. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. After these things, I, John, looked, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here. I will show you things which must take place after this. And immediately I was in the Spirit. I want you to notice two facts about what I just read there. First, it only speaks about John. It doesn't even mention the church. There's no talk about the church being raptured. And secondly, those words, in the Spirit, John uses the very same words three other times in the book of Revelation, and we don't count any of those as a rapture. So why would we do it just to this one place? Going one step further. Notice the NIV study Bible. I like the fact that they point out only some interpreters find the rapture of the church in this verse. Now here's something very interesting. Dr. LaHaye. You may be familiar with Dr. LaHaye. He has about 16 volumes out there called the Left Behind series. That's this book right here, the lower book. Open it up, no Bible verses. It's fictional. But it's based on this book that most people have not read. The book on top is actually his commentary on Revelation. Notice his words. None of these, this is from his commentary now. 
None of the above cited reasons is sufficient in itself to insist that Revelation 4, 1 and 2 refers to the rapture of the church. Well, that's quite a statement right there. He goes on. Most prophecy scholars are reluctant to say that Revelation 4, 1 through 2 are a direct teaching of the rapture because it does not specifically say so or give us any additional details about that event. And yet with that admission, he still has 16 books that are gobbled up by the millions because no one's reading his commentary. They're only reading the fictional work. NIV application commentary. Most contemporary commentators believe that all believers are still on earth during the tribulation. The point is, the Bible does not teach that the church is secretly raptured in Revelation 4. So this morning, as we open up the church service, looking at the four horsemen, what you're going to find is, Jesus and his church are alive and well. The church has not been raptured. This final message is about you and I today. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, so much information, so short of time. But this morning, Lord, you've given us the opportunity to come here together to fellowship on your Sabbath, to open your word, to look at what your word actually says. And we thank you, Lord, for these other minds, these other great people of, of Bible study who have looked at these passages and who have made the statements that they have made that we can share here this morning. Lord, we ask now as we continue into your Sabbath, as we continue to serve us, guide us, Lord, with your spirit. May all that we say and do here this morning be to your glory of your name. Amen. Amen.